So, sorry, my name is Catherine Coke, I'm the head of training here at Gifford Data Institute. Um, we have these lectures every week. Ooh, welcome. Um, and today, what's really, really nice is that we're welcoming back um, ben, and ben and George, who were on our Open Data and Practice course earlier in the year. And I'm just really excited to see what they're going to be saying. Um, they are talking about, as you say here, how to build an open data um, centric organisation. And they've brought along Andrew to help them, I think. Or get <laughs> in the way. Or get in the way. <laughs> so um, the, the way this will work is we'll have 20 minutes of these guys telling us how they, what work they've been doing, and then time for questions and conversation. If any of you want to join in on Twitter, it's ODI Fridays. Um, but really, over to you. Whoever reviews, please begin. I think I'm leading off. Thanks, Catherine. I'm the bit that gets in the way before George and Ben told you about the exciting bits in, in a few moments' time. Sorry, I'm, I'm Andrew Trigg, and I'm head of the data programme in Land Registry. So I'm responsible for um, the entirety of the data life cycle, if you like, within Land Registry, from the point where it's captured by an individual caseworker in Land Registry, right through to how it's published and released, whether in open form or, or whatever form it's, it's made available in. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment, and I think George and Ben will probably introduce themselves as we go through as well. Before we start to talk about all the exciting things we've been doing over the past two or three years, I thought it was worthwhile just setting some context. And it's as recent as 1990 um, when the, the land register became open in any sense for the very first time. So prior to 1990, it wasn't possible for you as an individual to gain information about any individual property ownership or title of anywhere in the country other than anything you owned already. Presumably you knew that you owned it and you knew the information about it anyway. So access to that was very restricted, very constrained, and you weren't allowed, mainly I think through privacy concerns, fraud concerns, to access any information on the land register. So that's within the last 20 years or so. And it's only really been in the last four or five years we've seen any significant shift towards being able to give access to any data on the register in any kind of volume or more than one title at, at a time um, level of information at all. So hopefully what you're going to see in the next 20 minutes will, will reinforce the fact that we, we think we've come an awful long way in quite a short time, um, certainly for a civil service organisation. I've, I've sent... I've, very consciously chosen the title to this slide and, and used the word ambition because we, we are very conscious that some of the things we're aspiring to do for Land Registry, given where we're starting from, is very ambitious. But so far, two years into the cycle, we have actually achieved everything we're, we're setting out to do. Perhaps the, the single largest challenge that we've had is turning the mindset of the organisation, the cultural side of getting people who work for land registry to understand that they're not just registering land, that as, as part of that process of registering land, they're actually maintaining and creating an incredibly large and valuable data asset. Now, that might sound obvious to this kind of audience, but if you've been sat at a desk for the last 30 years registering land for Mrs Smith, who's just bought a house around the corner, that's what you do. And anything that comes from that is probably invisible to you, and you're blind to that fact. So it sounds like a very simple thing to do, to turn somebody's mind to thinking, yes, I'm actually building a database which is going to be then used for all sorts of other things. It's actually quite a difficult task for us and remains, remains a challenge as well. 
So having a bold statement of, in terms of the vision of the data strategy, there are some things in there which, which really position us in, in quite unusual territory as an organisation. So the, the vision to start providing um, data to be reused within the land and property sector is, is quite a different focus for an organisation. And even at board level, that takes some readjusting to, where the entire focus has been on throughput, speed of service, about registration. Getting them to think and understand in a data-centric way, again, still remains to be a, as a challenge. I think the mission here is very interesting as well, because it's all about the benefit that we can provide to others. So it's about making our data available in a reusable form for others to take and add the value to. So it's not about us maximising revenue. It's not, a, it's not a financial driver for us, although I'll come to a nuance of that in a moment's time. It's about getting as much data out as openly as possible and as accessible as possible as quickly as possible. We actually have... I own a corporate key performance indicator, which is that we will get all of our publishable data out in linked data format by the end of March 18, which is feels like it's a way away, still more than four years away, but actually that is, that is a massive, massive, massive challenge for us to achieve that. It's about turning us into a data organisation as well. So this isn't all about publishing open data. This is turning us, as the title of the presentation suggests, into a data-centric organisation. So it, it should become part of the rationale, the raison d'etre, why we exist as an organisation. So it's also about our own efficiency and capability as a data organisation as well. We believe, certainly the likes of George, Ben and I believe, that putting data at the centre of the organisation actually will enable us to do the registration activity for more efficiently and quickly and cheaply as well. I would hope many of these principles are fairly self-evident by the words that are on the slide, but I'm just going to spend a couple of moments talking about each of those six principles. I've really already touched on the transparency one, and clearly at the heart of, of ODI, and I presume most of what you guys um, are driving for, making most of, as much of our data as possible in an open and usable format without constraint to, to anybody who wants to have access to it. Key as well, and I've already alluded to this, is that we, don't, we won't create the value in our data. We see ourselves very clearly, very firmly, as the people providing the fuel for others to take away and do interesting and exciting things with. So the, the value to the economy and to SMEs will be created by them themselves, not by us. So we don't have ambition to start mashing our data with other data, providing value-add services. We, we see ourselves as providing of that, that raw data to, for others to take away and do as they will. Rather like Shakespeare tells us to do, the Shakespeare report, we also, we would have a tendency as a civil service organisation and certainly because we have pride in what we do to try and create the Rolls-Royce data set. We realise we don't have Rolls-Royce data sets because, partly because, that the, the focus, as I've already explained, has never been on creating the data. It's about, been about registering land. Therefore, the data is seen as a byproduct, and if it's not quite right, it doesn't necessarily matter too much as long as the registration activity is appropriate. We've got to change that to make sure the quality of the data improves, but we're not going to wait until we've gone through that process before we release the data. So we release the data in a less than perfect form for others to tell us where it's less than perfect, but also while we're working actively to, to do that improvement at the same time. Key, key issue for us, and hopefully you'll all appreciate this, is that 
We also have a duty of care to the people whose information appears on the register. So we have to be sure that we're not transgressing any privacy or data protection concerns. So we, we will publish as much as we can. The, the, it's always taken that we will publish data, we just need to justify why we're not, rather than the other way around, which may have been the temptation in the past. The presumption is to publish, unless there are real reasons, real drivers to, to prevent us from, from doing that. And I think this probably re-emphasises just some of the strands of the earlier, the earlier information, that we're going to publish the data for others to, to analyse. We won't be doing the, the value-add analysis information as well, with, with, some, with some small exceptions. Significantly internally as well, we need to make sure that if we are turning into a data organisation and we are well along that path already, we need to continue to invest not just in infrastructure and boxes and wires, but in having the right people with the right skills in the organisation to support that as well. We have far too few Bens and Georges in the organisation at the moment who really understand our data and can do the right things with it and, and continue to ensure that we're doing the right things with it. So that's a significant investment for us as an organisation. And I'm going to talk very quickly about these strategic aims because I've got three more slides I want to get through before I hand over to George. It's the least sexy of all of these bits, but to do this properly, we need to get make sure we've got the right framework and governance processes in place. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that on one of the next three slides. It's very important for us that we're managing our data in a proactive way rather than just seeing it as something that happens by chance and as a spin-off product from, from registration processes. I think I've talked about culture and capability already. If we're going to maximise the benefit that's accruing from the data, we need to make sure that everybody sitting at a desk registering a piece of land understands they're creating data that's going to be used by you guys and the Zooplas and the right moves of the world tomorrow. So their information and the accuracy of that information is of key importance for all sorts of reasons other than straightforward land registration. I'm going to skip through, I think, some of these because time doesn't permit me to go into enough detail. I think it's important that I talk about a sustainable revenue model because although the driver is to do things in an open format wherever possible, we're not allowed, legally not allowed, to cross-subsidise our statutory land registration processes to, to just publish all of our data for free. So that data publication activity has to be self-funding. So that's what we mean by a sustainable commercial model. That effectively means that as we're releasing more data, the majority will be for free, but some of it may still be charged for at marginal cost or even at a commercial rate. The tendency will be that we will charge for commercial, at commercial rate for the data where it's of specific interest to specific commercial markets, but not always. This is really just saying we can't, we're not able to publish everything for free, but the majority will be for free um, in an open and accessible format. And I think it goes along with all of the other activity because we believe we hold a significant data, national data asset. We think we ought to be playing in, the, in, in national arenas far more effectively than we have so far. So part of the, the ambition in the data strategy is to make sure that we're participating in the right fora and we're put, talking to the right people to make sure that our data is proactively and positively uh, publicised and, and the, the, so that people understand the potential that is in the data um, rather than just putting 
putting the data on our website or through a service and hoping people will find it and come. We, we see part of our new ambition to be to tell people it's there and to encourage encourage its reuse as, as far as possible. I'm probably getting towards the end of my ten minutes already, and I'm only on the first slide. So that is that is the, the most significant of, of the three slides. Um, so actually, where are we in this ambition? And I'd love to talk more about that ambition. Anybody who wants to stay behind and have long conversations about any of that, I'm more than happy to. Where are we now in that, in that transformation? Well, actually, we think we're a long way along already, as I think I've said already a couple of times. We've got the largest linked data set, we think, possibly ever, certainly within government. What's the number, George? How many triples have we got? 80-something million, is it? 460-something no. million triples in the three triple data sets. 460 million triples in the linked data set, what which was a... It's essentially the, the, in the, the linked data set, because I haven't, I haven't mentioned, I think these guys will talk about it, that wherever possible we're releasing our open data in linked form. Um, and the triple is basically the fundamental element of data within, within that linked data set. Is that right? Yes. Something has some other thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I I have a white share, yeah. I'm one I'm a subject. The predicate is have and the thing I have is a white share. So yeah. so basically there are four hundred and eighty million things in our data set that is available in linked form through through various channels. Um and actually, because we've gone through the process of defining what all of our data is, we were the first government uh, department to create a data inventory prior to the national information infrastructure. So we think we've got a pretty mature understanding of our, of our data sets. We already publish nearly two-thirds of those data sets that are publishable already, and I'll come to what, mean, what we mean by publishable on the next slide. So actually, we're a long way towards that ambition already. By 2015, so not far away now, um, Talking about local land charges would take a whole lecture in itself, so I won't talk about that. But we've, we hope to have moved to at least 90% of our data sets by, by really just over a year of, uh, year's time, 15 months' time, 14-15. Uh, um, and really this is building on the profile uh, point that I made on the previous slide, starting a data-specific Twitter feed from land registry, so not using the generic corporate one, um, and an ambition to have many thousand if you like, followers to that particular Twitter feed um, within a very short space of, of time. And we see that almost as a proxy measure of our engagement with the community. If, the, if there's interest and people are engaging through those kinds of channels, then we will have succeeded. In the interest of time, I'm going to scoot on to the next slide, which is this, this, is, this is the but slide, because we're wanting to do lots of interesting, innovative things with our data, get as much of data out there as possible, but we have to make sure that we're conforming to certain, certain caveats and certain, certain constraints that we have to operate within because of the nature of our organisation. So we will go through certain hoops in terms of judging whether a data set is releasable or not before we release it. And I think an important part of the governance and ownership point I made earlier is that each data set, as it's going through this process, will have an owner. So a, a nominated, recognised owner of that data set who takes it through this process. And they are the ones who are effectively the advocates for that data set and are trying to address any of these issues if they arise. So, for example, I've mentioned the privacy point already. We're not allowed to release personal data. So we can release information about the price that a property was sold for. What we can't do 
is we can't say that, that I own it and that I've got a mortgage and the mortgage value is X. All of which is on the register, sorry the mortgage value isn't on the register, but the fact I have a mortgage and who it's with is on the register. We can't release that information, hopefully for fairly self-evident purposes. So there are, there are, there are more nuances to that challenge as well around whether something is uh, a, a privacy concern or not, but it's a hoop that a data set has to, to pass through. Just as importantly, as along with most of the government, we're very aware of the potential for our data to, to enable fraud. So clearly we don't want to be releasing data which allows somebody to take wrongful possession or ownership of a property, for example, which it would do if we released all of our information that we have on the register. And I think that's in all our interests that that can't happen. But it's another hoop we have to, we have to jump through. Commercial impact is really that point I was making on the previous slide about having a sustainable <coughs> revenue model. We just need to make sure that in releasing the data for free as open data, we're not seriously damaging that overall sustainable revenue model for the, for the data portfolio as a whole. And just so I end on, a, on a, an up note rather than a, the but slide. Um, oops, sorry, George. <laughs> um, just really just an example of, again, how we're trying to engage with the developer market and pro potential users of our data set. <coughs> we, we had an open data challenge recently, which ODI were, were, were very good enough to, to be part of the judging panel for, really just to investigate ways of, uh, to stimulate ideas of how a specific <coughs> data set or price paid data set, how that might be used in, in new and innovative ways with a, with, a, with a financial reward attached to it. And we're pleased to announce, either last week or the week before, recently, the two winners of that first challenge. Um, one was a small startup organisation, Adzuna. Um, they're going to be using it to, to enhance the service they already offer for people doing job searching, job selection. Um, and, and they also do other things other, but as their primary focus. They see the price paid data as being an important piece of information that somebody's going to use when looking where to work and, and, and in what kind of environment. The price paid history of an area is very important. But for me, the, the, the most intriguing one was the guy, an individual, a guy called Dan Hilton, who's a, a developer. He, he really thought about it a little more laterally than, than any of the other entries and came at it as, well, yeah, fine, we've got a price, a value for the price a property sold at, but that's not the bit I'm interested in. Is that, the fact that there is a price on a property is a clear change indicator, i.e. a property has sold hands. So therefore, more often than not, in 99% of those occasions, it means somebody's going to have moved out, somebody's going to have moved in. So he, he's using that to effectively act as a service to e-commerce providers to promote, or pr prompt them rather, to the fact that somebody who's continued to buy things from their website but as used to live in a, in, a, in a residential property which has undergone a transaction recently, has probably moved address. So they don't want to be, there is a large problem of continuing to deliver packages to the wrong address after somebody's moved. If you know something's happened to that property, you can prompt for the user to, to change their address, which often can be overlooked. I'm not explain that very lucidly, but hopefully you got, got, the, got the idea. But, but just the overall concept of the data as change intelligence, you can see all sorts of associated uses of that carpet salesman, to use a banal example, you know, people put new carpets in when they move house. So if you know when a property is sold recently, that's a target for, target for our data. And my favourite example, on which I'll end, 
um, was for our Inspire data, which is the polygon property extent. Um, we had some, again, lots of what you would expect in terms of types of usage, but we had uh, one organisation which is going to start using it for lawnmower sales. Now, how on earth does that work? You, you, you know the definition of residential areas. There are data sets which define urban and built-up areas, so you can identify our properties that fall within those areas. You then look for properties which fall along residential streets with gardens over a certain size. Therefore, they're the prime market for sit-on lawnmower sales. So it's about the area and con context of that property, which is the important driver. So again, a slight lateral thought process to, to the use of our data can, can be made of. And at that point, it's probably the appropriate point to hand over to George, who's going to be taking us further into the future, but whilst also describing what we've done this, thus far as well. So over to you, George. Hello, I'm George. Uh, I've been working with the land registry now for about 12 years. Um, I've done MI and business intelligence and data warehousing and I'm now working in the data governance <coughs> section um, assisting in the various programmes to do with moving data around at the land registry. <coughs> Let me give you a chance to read it. This was published, well, as it says, late last year, uh, middle of last year, in 2000 AD. Now, that's a magazine that describes the future, but of course, already, their title is already three or 13 years out of date, and perhaps they're due for an upgrade. Uh, 3000 AD, maybe. But they're using our reference to us, a cultural reference. Our journey in open data started with the land registry overcame legal objections by running a small-scale privacy impact assessment a year prior to the release of the house price dataset. Much thought went into the protection of privacy. Land registry sought guidance from the Information Commissioner's Office and carried out a risk assessment process and then provided assurance and evidence of these activities to the citizen. We considered whether an address, as Andrew has said, was personal data in relation to a sale. We evaluated whether our application privacy statement was robust enough to cover the release of that data. And we evaluated the ability to discover, with already published datasets, what was in our dataset we were about to produce. The Land Registry then published the full privacy impact assessment to accompany the dataset in March 2013. We then had to establish the business case for wider economic benefit against the short-term cost of losing the revenue from the datasets. This was very challenging to the Land Registry. The PIA team invested the current usage of market trend datasets and managed the transition with the existing commercial customers to using our open data. We now publish five significant open data sets. 
the Inspire polygons that Andrew has mentioned, the property price data set, the transaction data, the house price index data, and our data set inventory of nearly 500 different data sets that the land registry hold. All of our non-spatial data sets are available in standard human-readable format and, where appropriate, in machine-readable formats, which are updated monthly, published on landregistry.gov.uk and data.gov.uk, accessible via a Sparkle form point and a linked data API, though we've kept that secret for some reason. I don't quite understand why. Stored as triples with searchable URIs and definitions, and they're licensed under the Open Government Licence, though I should add that the Inspire data is also subject to Ordnance Survey licence modifications to the Open Government Licence. The infographic at the bottom was published in November 2013 when we released our full historical price paid data set from 1995 to date. Um, which is what took our data set triple store size to 490 million triples. The, the, uh, the sizes of the icons, the grey icons reflect the volumes at 1995, the orange ones at the peak, 2007, and the green ones, what we're currently doing in 2013. Ben is now going to show us something to go on with, uh, having seen the timeline of where our open data went through and some of the events surrounding it. Thanks, George. Uh, so my name's Ben and I work in the data governance team with George. We're both uh, data specialists that are looking to enable further releases of open data. So what you're seeing here is a timeline of land registry data publications on the left hand side and on the right hand side sort of key events that happen so the OGL being created and data.gov.uk uh, also the white paper that I'll be talking about in a moment and here you can see we put in when the ODI was founded okay so something else that we had to do in order to publish these data sets is that we first had to build the capability within our organisation to do so. And so part of that, as Andrew explained, is about embedding a data governance structure that is essential to building an open data capability. The other strand of capability is about the technology of open data. And so the challenge the Land Registry faced was from moving from a relational database technologies background towards uh, open data and linked data to understand how the different data structures worked together and informed one another. And we also had to tackle a, new, a whole new vocabulary of ontologies, triples and sparkle. Uh, but how did we do this? Well, one of the um, ways that we achieved this is we managed the number of challenges around open data by going into partnership with Epimorphics Limited. And they hosted the Land Registry's triple store and provide guidance on structure ontology. So that way we were managing the amount of new that we were having to tackle. We knew our data, but we didn't know about uh, linked data. So 
This allowed the land registry to build its capability quite quickly and quickly enough to respond to the open data white paper unleashing the potential. And it was during that phase that we published our first open data set in a machine readable format and also a ontology to support that data release. More recently, um, members of staff have been attending ODI training courses. So George and I came this September and that has continued to build our capability, introducing us to new concepts and standards for open data, such as the ODI certificates. And so, to move on to looking more at cultural things and to address some of the challenges that Andrew spoke about, the central message that I took away from my training at the ODI was that open data is a culture, not a technology. And with it is arguably the biggest challenge that we faced in how do we build a data-centric organisation. And so what we've done is we've run an internal awareness campaign around data to make clear the link between quality of data input and the value of data that that produces, to improve the awareness of our data journey from just an operational emphasis, and that's driven a cultural shift towards a more data-centric focused organisation, reinforcing the message that data is important and certainly as important as operational output. And so how have we done that? We've done that through a number of activities. So we've, uh, at a high level within the organisation, we've run a data needs advocates workshops and they've meant that we've engaged with senior management and explained around the value of data. But we've also done lunch and learn sessions that were open to everyone to come and ask about the sort of activities they were doing and how that was building up the data assets. And we're also planning an internal open data challenge for our staff to take part in because we recognise that we need to utilise the knowledge and ideas around our data that we already own and have in our organisation. And also that has an important empowerment role for our existing staff. And so by doing this, we're broadcasting messages to encourage staff within our organisation to understand and care about data to affect a positive engagement. And in the process of building this capability and culture, Land Registry has also ensured that all of our significant directorates, so that's all of our different business functions, now understand open data. So what I mean by that comment is, it's all very well George and Andrew and I down in IS understanding it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, the other directorates without, within, nationally within our organisation would understand it. So it's trying to get that message across to them and affect a change across the whole organisation. So we've done pretty well, but we're not going to rest there and be complacent, as George will now explain. My turn again. Land Registry now have that ongoing management challenge of the volume and also of the corrections to our open data sets. If you consider that we started out with probably 10 million triples and then by June had moved to about 30 million triples and now by the end of last month we're at 460 million, the growth, as you can see, is quite exponential. We have that challenge. We've outsourced our data provision to a number of uh, external companies um, and the Inspire dataset is not directly hosted
by land registry servers. It's somewhere in the cloud. Having reached this point, we are now better placed to consult with stakeholders and to make trade-off decisions in order to release more complicated data sets as open data. As Andrew has mentioned, we know about the mortgages that properties have, but we can't release it at an individual level. But we may be able to do something with aggregation to enable you to say how many mortgages there are with a particular organisation in a particular part of the country. Who knows? I don't know what we're going to be asked to do. The road, however, is not smooth. And while setting the default to open is still a useful policy starting point, there is a potentially dangerous conclusion. As a statutory service provider, the Land Registry has the additional consideration of whether releasing data sets could enable property fraud. The information must always be effectively aggregated in order to provide the benefits of openness without facilitating such fraud. We also need to increase the verification available for data attributed to land registry when published by a third party. This will involve exposing internal references and vocabulary for the processes of land registration. Some reference data around property type has already been released and is available in the API. The challenge is to make land registration vocabulary and language more accessible to the general public. We have innovative offerings such as our beta search services like the search house price data but we need to engage a wider citizen audience perhaps with an effective promotional picture which tells a story with the data or as I found today people looking at the open data and trying to get information from it and not able to find it simply because it's not explained well. A developer community also needs to be created to house the blogs and conversations for the data community about our datasets, which matches what we provide for citizen and commerce. Twitter, Stack Overflow, data.gov.uk and various individual blogs have all discussed land registry datasets, but these need to be pulled together to return the most value to the widest community. The Art Commission in the picture is for Seton Court, our office in Plymouth. It's described by the sculptor as a contemplation, an interaction between the old and the new, technology combining with the forces of nature into an upward transition of experience and focus. So, as our experience and focus evolve, new challenges emerge, like how our different web resources interact. There are four sources on that picture. We have a single source of truth in our enterprise data warehouse, which we use for our internal analytics and external services. But our land registry open data is published from multiple sources depending on the format. This needs to be sourced from the triple store. Even our corporate website content could be generated from our open data definitions rather than held as it currently is as static HTML. We hope this quick tour has given you an idea of how we are moving as an open data-centric organisation. 
we're only part way there. Any questions? <laughs>